It's been a while since we actually took some time to talk about the state of the election. And so given that we are now just after Labor Day, the point at which in a traditional American political cycle, we would say the presidential election kicks into high gear, I figured it was worth taking some time to take stock at where we are, where things look like they might go, and what the outcome might eventually be. This time, in 2020, it's hard to imagine that the election could kick into any higher gear. But if you live in a swing state, be prepared for the fact that you're about to be bombarded with political ads of every imaginable stripe. Today, we will break down some of the chaos and try to give you at least a framework for evaluating what is likely to happen in the next couple of months. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to another episode of Blind Politics. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. As always, views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School of Government. Remember that you can rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast provider. And you can find us on social media on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I do apologize for a bit of a hiatus last week. I am recording this on Friday. This is actually the second podcast that I will be recording today. And this one's probably going to drop first. We will be dropping another interview and I'm going to not spoil the uh, guest for that interview, but we'll be dropping that episode here fairly soon. There were a couple of issues that just kind of need to get straightened out on our end. Uh, we're still working with experimenting with a couple of new modes for recording this podcast. And so just kind of trying to see what's going to work best and which option will provide the highest quality experience to you, the listeners. And also working out logistics on a couple of interviews that we have planned for the future. Our Counting COVID podcast that I've been promising, I think is probably going to get recorded next week and will drop shortly thereafter. And so I figured what we would do right now is just take a look at the current state of the presidential election and possibly the current state of the election in the Senate as well and just kind of see where we are and let you guys know some things that I'm watching as we move forward in this election season. So I'm recording this on Friday. You're probably listening to this just after Labor Day. And we are at kind of a pivot point. So traditionally, Labor Day is seen as an inflection point in most presidential election cycles. It's the point at which we move from sort of the doldrums of summer into the high gear of fall. It is traditionally the point at which low info voters really start tuning in and everybody starts following the presidential election. As we come out of our uh, hibernation and start to realize, oh gosh, I have to decide which person I'm going to vote for here in a couple months. What are my options? And that's always a terrifying prospect, I would say. And certainly, if you haven't been following this and you're sort of checking back in now for the first time, you will be probably scratching your head and wondering how on earth 
did these two folks get to be the nominees of the two major political parties in the ostensibly most powerful country, the most free country, most democratic country by some standards in the world. And so that is a kind of a reality that, that people are having right now. I think it's very important for us as we're starting to discuss this, to just keep in mind that, and this is less true than probably in previous elections, but still true. A large segment of the American population does not follow politics as obsessively as you do if you're probably a regular listener to this podcast. So for a lot of people, things that are happening in politics are just sort of background. They're not paying attention to sort of the ins and outs, the minutiae, the day-to-day stuff that's going on. And frankly, most of the commentary that's out there on politics is so partisan, vitriolic, and hyperbolic that a lot of people just sort of tune it out. And they're really just starting to tune back in right now. And I would imagine that if you were kind of tuned out from American politics, just sort of casually following it, and then all of a sudden you tune back in right now, you would probably wonder what, number one, what fresh hell is this? And number two, what on earth were the writers of this TV show thinking? Because once again, we've got a crazy election cycle. Once again, we have just insane things being thrown about, you know, partisan arguments that seem absolutely over the top. And then a lot of them turn out to be true. Some of them turn out to be conspiracy theories. Some of them turn out to be bogus. And sifting through all of that seems like a lot. I would hate to be sort of a casual low info voter right now, tuning in to the election and trying to figure out what's going on. But keep in mind that a significant portion of the electorate, and we don't really know how significant because we don't know how how high voting totals are going to be, but a significant portion of the electorate is probably starting to tune in right about now. And will be probably starting to tune in over the next couple of months as they try to figure out, okay, who am I going to vote for? Who am I going to support in this upcoming election? And at this point, we kind of know the terrain of the race. We kind of know, to a certain extent at least, what the issues are going to be, what the dynamic of the race is, and kind of how the election is going to play itself out. So here's what we can say at this point. Number one, according to polling, Biden has a lead that ranges somewhere from, I would say, five to eight points, give or take. Some polls have it as high as maybe 10 a very few points, uh, polls have it sort of less than five, but most of what I'm seeing recently nationally has it within sort of five to eight points. That is a statistically significant lead, but not necessarily an insurmountable lead. If you were expecting Trump to be sort of down routinely by 20 points at this point, you're probably disappointed. You know, he's Trump is having a hard time, I would say, breaking beyond 44%. And for an incumbent president, you want to be concerned about that. And he's going as low as maybe 39 in a really bad poll. Biden is ranging somewhere between sort of 53 and 48% of the vote, depending on where you are. But what you're seeing is that, you know, if Trump is is more toward 41 or, or 40, then Biden is more in that 48, 49, or, or even 40, 47% range. So it's not like there are a lot of polls where Trump's at his high mark and Biden's at his low mark. The, the spread looks to be about the same. The question seems to be how hard are the pollsters pushing undecided voters? After Labor Day, we're probably going to start to see undecideds get pushed harder. And so we should you should expect for no particularly discernible reason, the race to tighten on average a couple of points. That is pretty normal after Labor Day, regardless of who's up, regardless of the dynamics of the race. So if you're seeing a pollster that generally has it, mm, Biden plus eight, Biden plus nine right now, you should expect to see that go down to sort of the Biden plus 
five to six range. If it's in that sort of Biden plus five range already, you're going to start seeing poll numbers that look really, really tight. The state polling is interesting because what we're seeing is a sort of variable result. And some of the variations are pretty wide. But again, we kind of know what the swing states are going to be and where there is a competitive environment. And this is a bit of a concern. I would say there are, there are a couple of red lights sort of on the, the warning on the dashboard for both the Trump and the Biden campaigns as we're looking at the polling. We know that the three pivot point states for 2016, the three states that in 2016 determined the outcome of the election, were Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Those are the three states that essentially put Trump over the line. Those are the three states where Democrats need to win back somewhere between 30 to 80,000 voters in each of those states if they're going to win the election. If you're the Trump campaign, you're very concerned about the polling that you're seeing in states that you won last time. Particularly, you're concerned about Florida, Ohio, North Carolina, Arizona, and possibly Georgia and Texas. I'm not necessarily putting a lot of stock in the Texas polling. Texas always pulls close, and then the Republican always pulls it out by somewhere between 8 to 20 points. This time, I think Trump is going to underperform, but I think he's going to win Texas probably by somewhere around 4 points, rather than which, which if you're a Republican and you're looking at the long term, if that pattern holds up, you're terrified about that, because that moves Texas from sort of a red state to a, a red-leaning swing state. And at a minimum, that's going to cost the GOP a lot of money if that trend holds up. I think Trump is also a really bad fit for Texas. And so is that a Trump effect or is that, you know, Texas is, is finally turning blue, which Texas Democrats have been claiming Texas is going to turn blue for basically the entirety of my political life. So um, I'm a little skeptical of that at this point, but I do think Trump is going to underperform, probably not enough to put the state in play for him. But if you're Trump, you're a little worried that you're going to have to play defense in place like, places like Georgia, Arizona, North Carolina, so on and so forth. You're also a little bit worried about those states because there are some Senate races. And as we'll talk about here in a few minutes, Senate control is very much up for grabs. I don't necessarily know that Democrats are going to have the banner year in the Senate that they are expecting that they are. I would only put their odds of taking the Senate at about 50-50. But there certainly is a possibility for that. Now, if you're the Democrats, you're feeling pretty good except for a couple of things. One, you're probably feeling pretty good about Pennsylvania right now. The polling definitely seems to show a tilt toward Biden at this point. You're probably worried about Michigan if you're a Democrat. Again, polling is showing a very, very tight race there. And Michigan seems like one of those states where if the disaffection of sort of the white working class voters, and keep in mind, these are folks that voted often for Obama twice. If that disaffection with Trump was really, or, or with, with uh, Democrats was really just disaffection with Hillary, you should see Biden massively overperforming Hillary in Michigan. We're not necessarily seeing that at this point. That doesn't mean it couldn't happen, but we're not seeing that at this point. There's also a Senate race there. Right now, the Democrats have a, a lead there. I'll come back to that race. That's going to end up being a pivot, uh, pivot point race because... You know, that could be a sneaky, a sneaky play for, for Republicans. The other state that you're keeping an eye on, if you're sort of looking at these, these races, is Minnesota. Minnesota has been very close in the polling, close enough that the Trump campaign is actually starting to invest some campaign cash there and, and sort of try to put Minnesota in play. Minnesota is sort of the closest swing state that Hillary Clinton actually held on to, and it has a lot of the dynamics that are fairly similar to 
states that were jump ball states for, that went for Trump last time, like Michigan, Minnesota, or like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, particularly sort of the large white working class population that has traditionally voted Democrat, but is capable of realigning. What saved Clinton last time in Minnesota were the suburbs, but Minnesota has been ground zero for, of course, a lot of the protests. And so that, I would say, has made Minnesota a jump ball, particularly as some of the protesters in Minneapolis and St. Paul have talked about sort of taking things out to the suburbs. Basically, protesters in inner cities talking about how, you know, they're going to go burn down suburban neighborhoods. And these folks, I think, are, are not necessarily... BLM folks, they're not necessarily folks that are motivated by the, the racial justice stuff. I would say these are, are a combination of folks that are genuine anarchists and folks that, you know, have been suffering from unemployment and are, are looking for, you know, some sort of response to that. But insofar as you've got people who are violent, you know, rioting, looting, and they're talking about how we're going to go burn down the suburbs, uh, that's basically an infomercial for Trump. So in states where you're seeing that, you might see a suburban snap back to Trump. That's not impossible. And I think if the Democrats are thinking it is impossible completely, they are fooling themselves. And I don't, I actually think, and we'll talk about this in a second, Democrats are aware that this is a potential problem. They just don't know what they can do about it. So we'll come back to that in a second. So that's a potential worrying sign for Democrats. Now, if you're looking at the Senate polling, it looks like a very sort of touch and go situation for Republicans. Republicans are clearly going to pick up one Senate seat that is currently held by Democrats. That is... Tommy Tupperville, former Auburn coach, who's running against Doug Jones, the incumbent sort of Democratic senator who beat Roy Moore in the special election. That seat's probably going to snap back. It was a fluke in the first place. Now, on the other hand, Democrats are defending or are attacking in some tough territory for Republicans, particularly Senate seats in states like Colorado, where Cory Gardner is defending a seat in Arizona where appointed uh, Senator Martha McSally is trying to hold on to her seat against a, a tough challenge from Mark Kelly. In Colorado, Cory Gardner is running against John Hickenlooper. In North Carolina, you've got Tom Tillis, who is running against Cal Cunningham, who's a sort of repeat candidate. Cunningham ran against Richard Burr, I want to say back in 2000, oh gosh, I think it was either 2010 or 2014. Well, this is the 2000, it must have been 2000, uh, 2010 or 12, because Burr would, is not up this cycle, and, and this is the, the sort of Tillis seat, which was what she won in 2014, so that was six years ago. So I, I, whichever Burr ran last, Cunningham sort of ran in the primary. As I recall, he lost that primary to another candidate named Elaine Marshall, and then you know he is, he is now running again for Senate in North Carolina, uh, and that's a very, very tight race. That one seems to be tracking mostly with the the presidential vote in North Carolina. So I don't see, for example, I, you could imagine sort of a, Bide, a Biden Gardner voter in Colorado. You know, Gardner has a little bit more of sort of an independent streak. He's a little bit more of a, a known name. I would say that the Tillis Cunningham race is going to track very closely with Trump and Biden just based on what I've seen so far with with the polling. It seems very very close there. Democrats are also you know, contesting against Iowa. There they've had a bit of a recruitment flop. I would say Joni Ernst is looking a little bit safer than she did maybe earlier in the cycle. But they had a, the Democrats offset that with a real recruiting coup. They recruited Steve Bullock, who is a popular former governor in Montana who's running against Steve Daines. Now, I will say this in terms of Montana. Montana's going to go for Trump. And this is a, a common strategy that the out party will run in an election of sort of bringing in a popular nonpartisan governor that might have even been very popular when they were uh, serving 
to run for a Senate seat. And what they tend to find is, you know, historically, those candidates look really good on paper and end up not winning the race simply because, you know, there is a big difference between saying, you know, I like a sort of moderate-ish member of the opposite party as governor, and I want somebody in the Senate who's going to vote sort of against the partisan lean of the state to a large degree. So, you know, I think that one is certainly on the playing field for Democrats. It wouldn't completely be a shocker if they won it, but I would I would say Danes, the incumbent Republican, is, is probably a strong lean favor at that point. And then, of course, you have the two races in Georgia. David Perdue, who's an incumbent, is probably fine. The, the race of sort of the appointed Senator Kelly Loeffler, who is running against both more sort of uh, anti-establishment conservative Republican Doug Collins, and also the Democratic nominee Raphael Warnock. If you're Loeffler, you're probably hoping that you get to a runoff against Warnock, because then, you know, the people who voted for Collins are likely to come home. If you're Collins, you're hoping that you, you're also hoping that you get to a runoff against Warnock because you are then, you know, again, the, the other Leffler voters are, are potentially coming home. If you're Warnock, you're really hoping that somehow you can squeak through without a primary runoff. So the way it works in, in, in Georgia is if a candidate gets above 50%, they do not have a runoff. If the, a candidate does not break 50%, then the top two vote getters do move on to a runoff. Runoffs have not been kind to Democrats in the past. It is also in a three-way race, very possible that you actually ultimately see a Republican versus Republican runoff. And so, you know, that certainly is another possibility. Well, so, you know, that's just a kind of a race to to keep an eye on, to, to watch. I think Purdue is probably going to be fine in the other Republican-held Georgia Senate seat. I would not expect that one to end up sort of going to a runoff vote. You know, in terms of other... Senate races that are up in this cycle where Democrats are, are sort of hoping to make gains, I would say their best shots are probably Arizona, Colorado, North Carolina. There's that outside chance in either Georgia or Montana. And, you know, there, there certainly are a couple others that Democrats have talked about as targets. You know, they've talked about targeting Mitch McConnell with uh, sort of Amy McGrath. That, I would say, seems pretty unlikely. McConnell is almost certain to hold on there. McGrath, as challenger, wasn't able to win a congressional race in 2018. So I wouldn't necessarily say that she's likely to win that race. You know, off the top of my head, that seems like it. Although I feel like I must be missing at least one swing state race where Democrats are, are targeting and have a reasonable shot at making some hay. So that's kind of the... St oh, I am. I am, in fact. And that one is is probably another one of the most vulnerable Republicans up right now, and that is Susan Collins. That is an interesting race. So uh, Susan Collins is running in Maine. Sarah Gideon, her opponent, is a sort of well-known, um, very generic Democrat. And, you know, the question there is going to be, does Collins get enough ticket splitters to maintain her position? Or is she seen as too much of a uh, sort of Republican leaning, you know, candidate there just because of a couple of, of votes that she's taken. The one that she's taken the most heat for is of course voting for the confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh. So, you know, that's sort of the state of play that we see. Ultimately, I think the Democrats would pick up some seats. I don't know that they're going to get enough seats to get the majority. 
I think that you're probably looking at a decreased Republican majority, but still a Republican majority. Now, the jokers in the deck are two races that I think Democrats are more likely than not to hold on in, but that I'm watching on election night because if it's a really good night for Republicans or a really good night for Trump in sort of the Rust Belt, you know, it's very possible that one or both of these goes to Republicans. One is in Minnesota. This one, I'd say it's a little bit more off the playing field. It's appointed incumbent Tina Smith, who's a Democrat, against Jason Lewis, sort of a you know hard-charging, a little bit controversial conservative Republican, former talk show host, one-term congressman who's running for this Senate race. There's been some polling that has showed the race tied or close. Now, the polls that I saw with a close race were clearly not pushing leaners that hard. I just saw one, I guess yesterday, that was released. It was an internal from the Lewis campaign that had them down. It didn't have them down much, but when you're down in your own internals that you're releasing, that probably indicates that you are behind by a certain margin. However, if Trump is actually going to be spending a lot more money in the state, that potentially boosts Lewis as well. On the other hand, Michigan, you have Gary Peters, who is an incumbent, who's sort of the most generic Democrat ever. And he is running against John James, uh, sort of an African-American, Republican, former businessman, uh, former military. And James ran a surprisingly good race against Debbie Sabinow in 2018. He's back for his second try in 2020. And I think James could surprise. Uh, Polling has shown him down by sort of mid to high single digits. That almost certainly is going to tighten as people start paying attention to the race more. And I think that, you know, he is the kind of candidate who in the right environment could sneak by in Michigan. And that's going to be a race to watch. You know, there, there have been a lot of stories. Tim Alberta actually had a very good story earlier in the summer about disaffection among African-American, even sort of activists with the Democratic Party. If there's any kind of disaffection with African-Americans in Michigan, I don't necessarily think that means that a lot of folks are suddenly going to vote for Trump. I, I, I think he's probably, ultimately, I do think he will outperform his number with African-Americans in terms of percentage of the vote from last time. I don't know if that will mean raw voters or just more folks stay home. I'm not sure. I would not be surprised, though, if you see a little bit of sort of covert crossover uh, support for for John James. You know, and then that sort of depends on factors that I don't really know because I haven't been following that race on a granular level in particular, how well he is couching his his appeal to sort of non-traditional Republican voters, African-Americans in particular. So, you know, Michigan and Minnesota, bear watching. Like I said, you know, gun to my head, I probably would would give the Democrats a slight advantage in both of those races just because you have to go with the publicly available data. But my gut tells me Michigan's going to be close. Michigan could sort of be the pivot point state for Senate control. And so that that race sort of bears some watching. All right, so let's talk about the go back to the presidential after having reviewed a lot of polling and done a granular analysis of the Senate race. Because ultimately, ultimately, for a lot of these races, North Carolina being a, a good example, you know, even the, the Michigan and Minnesota races that I just talked about, certainly the two Georgia races that I talked about. Really, what we're looking at here is to what extent the presidential election is going to affect the Senate races and who's going to win the presidential election. And here's, here's my sort of take on the status of the presidential election at the beginning of September. As we are moving into October, November, and as early voting starts to open up, and as people are wrestling with the question of how to vote, 
and all of these issues that have come up. I think who wins and who people are voting for, especially these sort of low-info, undecided voters that are checking in now, I think who they vote for largely will depend on what are they most concerned about. What I will say is that there are two issues that could dominate the political sphere over the next couple of months. It could be COVID, or it could be sort of the general sense that there is unrest in the cities and the sort of combination of peaceful protests and you know violent incidents, violent uh, rioting and looting and, and so on and so forth. So what are people hearing about? What are people the most concerned about? What is driving popular anxiety before the election? And the reason that matters is because I think if people are more anxious about COVID than they are about unrest, about sort of the, the urban unrest, then Biden is probably going to win. The Trump, the tr Trump has not received good marks on COVID. Trump is clearly not comfortable with the issue, not comfortable talking about the issue. And I don't, I don't really see that turning around. And I don't see a clear way in which he can turn that around in the next couple of months. So that's probably a losing issue for him. If that's the number one issue on folks' minds, probably COVID voters are voting for Biden. If, on the other hand, more people in specific key areas, because again, we're talking about the Electoral College, so we're talking about a couple of key states. If more people in key areas are concerned about this sense of urban unrest, this sense of sort of violence, the sense that, for lack of a better term, you know, the 60s and 70s are back. This was a time when, you know, there was seen as a lot more crime, a lot more violence, a lot more sort of un uh, social unrest. That's probably advantage Trump. Now, this seems counterintuitive, particularly if you're not a Trump supporter or if you're not a swing voter. If you're somebody who's, who's more on the left, you're going to say, why on earth would somebody say that Trump would have the advantage on this particular issue? And the reason is because people, voters in particular, want to have their cake and eat it too. They want racial progress. They don't like the idea that there is racism, that there's systemic racism, that all these issues are there. They want to see justice. But they don't like any perception of violence, of disorder, of unrest of sort of mob mentality. Americans are just sort of allergic to that sort of thing. It is not seen as the way we do things. It is seen as the way people do things in other countries and generally countries that we think are not as sort of successful or democratic as we are, right? Americans do not like to see that type of carnage and that type of violence. They want to see progress. They want to see things done and they want to see, they want to be able to know that somebody has a concrete plan for making progress and making these things improve that does not involve, you know, sort of violent destruction of property, right? I mean, so so it's it's kind of a balance that you have to see for candidates. And if they can't get one or the other, if they can't get progress, or, you know, if, if basically one side is saying we're for progress, and the other side is not saying anything about progress, but that side that's not saying anything about progress is talking about security, is talking about putting an end to the violence, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is going to kick in for people, and most people are going to say, we want to see the unrest stop more than we want to see progress in the immediate term, right? And this is actually something that, you know, from a comparative politics perspective, you would see in just about any environment where there is sort of any sense of unrest or violence. Even if folks sympathize with the grievances that insurgents are involved in. A lot of them just say, we want the violence to stop. We want life to go back to normal. Even people in the affected communities often say that. We see that outside the United States. We see that in, you know, consistently over and over and over again in these types of situations. 
the security first mentality is something that's hardwired into us as human beings. And so if people feel like something is going to spill out of control and there's going to be sort of violence that spills out of control and affects them on a personal level, if they feel unsafe because of that, and someone is promising to crack down and make that go away, they're going to probably align more toward that person than to the person who, if they have this perception of, you know, feeling unsafe, then to the person who says, well, you know, it's really just a few isolated incidents and, you know, it's not a, 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 as big of a deal. And, you know, we need to just take these grievances seriously. No, that's, that message is not going to get through. Now, I think Biden is trying to recalibrate on this. The challenge is that I think the Biden campaign and a lot of the people around him are very concerned that if they come down too hard on their sort of attacks on or, or critiques on the violence, it will be seen as not unduly unsympathetic to the protesters, and they will depress other parts of their voting coalition. I think they probably can have their cake and eat it too, and they probably should in some sort of uh, dramatic way try to get Biden out in front of this issue. I'm not sure at this point, though, that they can actually flip the script on that. The same way, you know, Trump really should try to come out and show leadership on COVID. He's probably not going to. Biden should probably come out and show leadership and, you know, do something that's really condemnatory toward the, the violence and the protesters and, and so on and so forth and really take the bull by the horns on that. I don't think he's going to be able to in the sense that I don't know that that messaging is going to penetrate through the noise, even if he does do something. At this point, it's probably too late for the messaging to get through. Just like, you know, at this point, even if Trump like came out and, and was just absolutely brilliant for the next two months on COVID, I don't think, I, I think it's too late for that perception to change. So I think perceptions may have hardened on both of those issues, right? So what is interesting is we're going to see all kinds of money, all kinds of ads, all kinds of, you know, micro-targeted attempts to move small constituencies that could potentially shape or reshape the outcome of the election. But ultimately, it's not really in the hands of either of the candidates. It's in the hands of the public mood, and it is going to be determined by factors that are to a degree kind of out of their control. So what does this mean in terms of the longer term you know, implications? Probably not that much, right? So this is not an election that is going to actually give anybody a sort of broad mandate for sweeping systemic social change or you know, the implementation of their agenda. This is gonna be an election that's really decided on, you know, there are two major crises happening there are two major issues where, where people feel as though there is a crisis happening. And in political science terms, if people feel like there's a crisis, there's a crisis. Whether you think it's a crisis or not doesn't really matter if the majority of people in the country think that there's, that there's a crisis or an issue, right? So the aggregate perception of a crisis means that a crisis exists, okay? And so we've got these two separate crises, and it really depends on which one is seen as more dangerous or more dramatic by the American public as they go to the voting booth. So that's going to determine the outcome. More specifically, I would say it's going to be a couple of places. I'm watching sort of the Sun Belt and the Rust Belt. And why, why those areas? Well, number one, because Texas, Arizona, Georgia, are, you know, Florida to a certain extent, and, and, and possibly also Ohio, are the states that Democrats are targeting that Trump won last time. If they win some combination of those states, there's no way that Trump can hold, up, hold on. On the other hand, Trump needs to hold all of his states, plus also, if he can, expand the map by winning Minnesota, just because that gives him a little bit more wiggle room if something goes wrong somewhere else. And so the, the Rust Belt states are also very important. 
Texas, Arizona, Georgia have kind of had their first COVID spike. Some of the Rust Belt states seem like they have not necessarily. You've heard about new cases starting to rise in Minnesota, cases starting to rise in, in Wisconsin, some of those other states. That is something to that bears watching and, and the extent to which COVID feels like a crisis in those states as we are moving toward the election versus the extent to which you know, the unrest in Kenosha, the unrest in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul, those types of issues are shaping the perception, right? So this is not actually an election that is going to be determined by the actions of either candidate. It's an election that I suspect is going to be determined by the national mood, by what people are the most concerned about. There's one caveat that I will give to that, which is that both Trump and Biden have an incredible ability to shoot themselves in the foot. Now, thus far, both of them have said absolutely ridiculous things that under most circumstances would disqualify someone and make them lose a presidential election. But it seems to have kind of all come out in the wash so far. How long does that hold up? You know, how much can people take of this sort of, you know, neither of them can really stop talking and neither of them really benefits when they talk all that much. So, you know, how, how, how long do people just sort of say it's all going to come out in the wash and, you know, they're all crazy and you have to pick one of them? I don't know. Can one of them potentially say something that's bad enough that they will be sort of disqualified by a majority of swing voters? Again, I don't know. But it bears watching. I do know that the debates, uh, they're talking about having three presidential and one vice presidential debate. At least that first presidential debate is going to be uh, some must-see TV. And, you know, I don't even know, if, if you put Trump and Biden on a stage together, I don't even know if Saturday Night Live can do a sketch for it. You know, the only thing that would make it better is if Kanye West also qualified and then it will just be complete insanity. At a minimum, there should be a couple of entertaining moments between now and the election. But ultimately, I think it's going to come down to the public mood. And so, you know, to summarize, I think if Trump or if, if COVID is the main issue on people's minds at the election, Biden is probably going to win. If it's more about urban violence, urban unrest, you know, the sense that sort of the 60s and 70s social unrest is, is coming back again, that's probably more likely to be advantage Trump than, than advantage Biden. So we'll have to see what happens and, and how that tracks as we move forward. In the Senate, you know, I'd say 50-50. If it's really a bad night for Trump overall, Democrats certainly could take the Senate. Um, I think a, a huge Democratic advantage in the Senate is probably not going to happen. So if they do take the Senate, I would imagine it's, it's by a fairly narrow margin. You know, I don't see the Democrats getting higher than sort of 52. And so what that means is that essentially you're dependent on Joe Manchin and maybe one other, you know, more moderate Democrat for all of your votes on, on major legislation, meaning it's not going to be very easy to move a lot of the stuff through the Senate that some of the more progressive elements of the Democratic Party might, might want. But we will have to see how all of that plays out. So uh, that's going to be a wrap for this election preview episode. Remember to rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. Check us out on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte and stay tuned for some exciting upcoming episodes. We will kind of follow the events. We'll also, you know, we've got a couple of interviews planned and, uh, you know, we'll just, we'll, we'll see what uh, 2020 throws at us. I don't know that I'm going to do a, a year end review episode at the end of the year because I think there's way too much going, going on for that. But we will see, you know, what happens and whatever happens politically, we'll be here to discuss it. So for Blind Politics, once again, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.